You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast with your host, Don DiMuccio. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. My name is Don DiMuccio, and I am the product of a one-night stand between Spiro Agnew and Ruth Buzzy. Pom-poms are fuzzy round things that dangle from a stick. All right, settle down now. As always, if you like the interviews we bring you and want to know when new episodes are available, please subscribe to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating along with a kind and loving review or check out our video content and subscribe to us on YouTube so I can stop making some f***ing money around here. I guess the first time I ever heard of today's guest was when I was about five or six, and that was through the Welcome Back Carter theme song, I'm embarrassed to say. But within a few years, I began to realize that singer-songwriter John Sebastian was responsible for some of the most popular American music of the 1960s. And in an era dominated by British Invasion acts, his band, The Love and Spoonful, scored eight consecutive Billboard hits. And they did it by utilizing a menagerie of genres, folk, blues, country, and of course, jug band music, but always wrapped in a rock and roll beat. Now, I forgot to ask him about this, but did you know at the height of their popularity, they were offered to be cast in a new idea for a TV show based on a fictitious rock band called The Monkees? Glad they turned that one down. And if you saw the movie Woodstock, you've seen Sebastian at his absolute peak, armed with nothing more than a borrowed acoustic guitar and five killer songs that held 500,000 people with rapt attention. And speaking of killer songs, here's a sampling of John Sebastian's work. You know you know the words. Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? How the music can free her whenever it starts. What a day for a daydream. Custom made for a daydreaming boy. Did you ever have to make up your mind? Pick up on one and leave the other behind. It's not often easy and not often kind. Did you ever have to make up your mind? But tonight it's a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on, and dance all night. Despite the heat, it'll be alright. And babe, don't you know it's a pity the days can't be like the nights in the summer, in the city, in the summer, in the city. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I 
I've had the privilege to speak with many legendary artists from around the world, but today marks my first time interviewing a true American treasure. As a founder of the 60s band The Loving Spoonful, this singer-songwriter delivered hit after top 10 hit like Do You Believe in Magic, Daydream, Nashville Cats, Darling Be Home Soon, and the hard-driving number one single, Summer in the City. To me, he's Rock's most underrated blues harmonica player, having done sessions with The Doors, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and & Young, and Bob Dylan to name a few. From scoring movie soundtracks for Woody Allen and Francis Ford Coppola to one memorable TV theme for Welcome Back, Carter, this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame renaissance man has done it all. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Mr. John Sebastian. Well, thank you, Mr. DiMuccio. Good afternoon. Howdy. How's it going, man? Excellent. We finally made it. After my computer was smoking and screaming and swearing, <laughs> and at I me. was sure, I was sure I was screwing it up because I really don't know how to operate these machines at all. Oh, so far so good. I'm usually the late guy, so it was an, an excuse to feel virtuous for a minute. Beautiful, good. And allow me to start off by wishing you an early happy birthday. Thank you kindly. I'm not divulging any trade secrets when I say you're going to be 78 as we're recording right. this on Wednesday. That's right. And I tell you, thanks to rock and roll, age literally means nothing. Just health and inspiration. That's that's all you need. You're touring. You're recording. Uh, enjoying, uh, yeah, work with Arlen Roth and uh, Mona Lisa twins. <laughs> they keep putting my videos up. They're a delight. This is a duo that uh, sings behind my most recent project with Arlen Roth, our, our most recent project, which is John Sebastian and Arlen Roth explore the Spoonful songbook. Have you been going over like any deep tracks that you guys never got a chance to do with the Spoonful live? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? Oh, I'm enjoying not being out there. I understand. Did you ever think when you started... You got look at the Stones still on tour, Paul and Ringo still doing it, and they both reached eighty. I mean, was that even a possibility that rock and roll would still be so popular? Yeah, you know, of course we could have taken cues from the big movement that had preceded us, swing and big band, and those guys were also pushing eighty and still on the bandstand. So uh, we have uh, models, the great blues men that we encountered uh, that we thought were so ancient, uh, very often <laughs> were like 63. Right. Uh, then we would uh, learn what life could be in their advanced age. I'm glad that I'm not pushed as economics usually do push some of these great men and women. Right. Uh, to uh, perform past a point where I'm not enjoying it. That does happen more times than not. I'm very lucky. I always like to start off with a brief overview of an artist's childhood and upbringing because, you know, it's going to have an influence on what their future body of work looks like. But with you, man, the people that were coming in and out of your house and around you when you were growing up in New York in what, the late 40s, early 50s, pretty incredible people. Yes, indeed. It, it, it was amazing. I can attribute most of it to my uh, parents having a, a terrific table. That is, conversation was always flowing. My dad was a great conversationalist, and so was my mom. She was a writer for radio, so at that point she was writing like funny for radio. So she was incredibly funny. And the other aspect was that my dad was a terrific cook and 
people would, uh, you know, like, here's a name, Max Liebman. Okay. Max and Sonia Liebman would routinely come on the weekend for dinner. Now, I didn't know who these folks were, very nice, very articulate, but I do remember when Max sat down at our table and said, Melvin is driving me out of my mind. (laughs) Sid held him out the window last week. And, of course, what he was talking about was your show of shows presented by Max Liebman. And uh, he and Sonia would have a nice meal, and discussion was always revolving around this poor man trying to regulate these highly temperamental, in, in Sid Caesar's case, and just a real nutcase in the case of Mel Brooks. And the musical people that were around, Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly? Well, the, the reason that happened was that Burl Ives, who was a close family friend, uh, had approached my folks about this wonderful songwriter. The, he's going to be the most important American songwriter. Nobody knows him. He's from Oklahoma. And he is out of a crib this week. He needs he needs a place to stay. I, I would later understand that this was the sort of a period when he was, uh, I, I think he'd been uh, rejected at home uh, for some infringement and uh, was uh, pretty much in our guest room for a week or two. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd hear him uh, as I was going to sleep Remember, I'm listening daily to the greatest classical harmonica player that ever lived in my father. That's right. So I would listen, and I'd be hearing, I was a poor and lonely stranger. You know, I thought, he's not as good as my dad. And that was my assessment at what, four (laughs) (laughs) of, of, of Woody Guthrie. But that's amazing that, you know, you were witness to history right there. Yeah. That's incredible. And and this blows my mind. Your godmother? Vivian Vance. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the, the situation was that as my mom was a writer and was one of the funniest people I'd ever known, you know, it, you kind of have to uh, approach understanding Jane Bisher like she was... Uh, I'm reaching for a name. Saturday Night Live primary writer, Amy Poehler and... Uh, Tina Fey, was it? Thank you, yes. Okay, you can cut that part out, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, uh, to understand my mom, you kind of have to understand that it was a 1940s version of Tina Fey because at 16, she was on her way from Dayton Radio to uh, Cincinnati Radio. And in another year or two, she was asked to come to New York and be a writer for NBC. Actually, my grandfather stepped up and said, yeah, honey, you can do it, but I'm your roommate. Yeah, and so Smart. that was how that was how that happened. Now, being in New York, you must have been influenced by 
New York radio. Oh, First yeah. hear rock and roll coming through the airwaves. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, very often Mark trips the family took by what I was listening to. And I remember being in Florida and hearing that'll be the day for the first time and just being fascinated. And then I t turn up Peggy Sue somewhere else and... uh I remember babysitting the night that I first heard Rumble by Link Ray. Mm. And I was so gobsmacked that I stayed up. You know, in those days, you knew that it would come back around. It would be rotated. And so I ended up staying up until about three in the morning, huddled against this radio to hear Rumble again. I talked to Pete Townsend about this, and he has absolutely the same experience of hearing it once and going, I'm not leaving this radio till I hear that again. Sure. Those guys were listening to Radio Luxembourg and getting all the American music. Yeah. But you were lucky to be right there at the heart of it. And speaking of, I know you were a big part of the burgeoning Greenwich Village folk scene. Yeah. Um, how'd you get involved with that? Well, part of it was I lived there. <laughs> I lived that? in Greenwich Village. <laughs> I lived off the corner of Washington Square. So talk about being close to the beating heart. I mean, the corner of Bleecker and McDougal is maybe six blocks away. I only have to go five blocks to play with Fred Neal or Timmy Harden or eventually Mississippi John Hurt. Mm-hmm. And those experiences were, were really shaping me and increasing my hunger for this music that I knew so little about. And at some point, you witnessed a very nascent Robert Zimmerman. Do you remember That's, the first yes, time you yeah. saw Dylan? Yeah, well, in our extreme youth and extreme lack of visibility, we were both playing harmonica in the basement, not on stage, of Gertie's Folk City. And he actually showed up to play piano for Victoria Spivy, who's a jug band era goddess. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Boy, uh, this woman was just such a marvel and so inclusive about these funny young Italian and Jewish kids <laughs> that wanted to be a jug band. Yeah. Uh, God bless that uh, she was so so uh, willing to, I mean, she went and coached Maria Muldor, which at that point she was Maria D'Amato, perché siamo tutti italiani. See, si. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> we eventually realized we were in competition for kind of sideman harmonica jobs. I, I was really miffed because he'd gotten one for Harry Belafonte, and uh, that just, that was tough. Uh, so, but... Uh, you know, so we uh, we knew each other really, like I say, as uh, unknown musical creatures of the night. We were passing in the same clubs, the Gaslight and Gertie's were the most often that I would see him. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was wonderful to watch the dawn of Bob Dylan. It was just a marvel because he had a, a wonderful, frequently described as Chaplin-esque quality on the stage. He had a kind of 
goofiness that said, I'm not trying to put on an official show, but then he'd sing something and you go, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, you know, so, and that was what was beginning to happen was that I began to hear some of these songs that were coming out of him and kind of felt like, you know, there's going to be room for me as a harmonica player here. Not really much as a protest song guy. Right, right, right. What was the scene like in terms of getting gigs? It was tremendously fertile. There were different levels. You know, it was like the comedians that described the Catskills of the 40s and 50s, that there was plenty of places to be bad. You could start at an afternoon open microphone somewhere in the evening. Now, if you weren't big enough to play the bitter end or the gaslight, I wasn't at that time, you could go and play a basket house, which had different rules that they, they were avoiding New York cabaret laws by passing the basket instead of paying the musicians. So. Yeah. You know, and it was an, an incredibly quick way to learn an awful lot. Oh, sure. When you're uh, kind of still singing little songs about uh, shepherds call her Iphigenia, and in walks <laughs> Richie Havens. With, he's got four months of guitar experience at this point. He's already better at his job than any of us. And yeah, he would just take all the money. It was hilarious. Was rock and roll seen by your fellow musicians at the time as pop music for kids and not as serious as the folk scene? Absolutely not. Uh, the, I guess there's a faction, you know, the kind of very full-out Pete Seeger faction. They'd come along later, don't worry. But at that point, I'd say that, you know, the... 40s folk singers had a, an involvement with politics and protest in general. And as time went on, there was a, a little more room for folks whose primary interest might be the charts. Right. Or just entertaining, forbid. you know, musical yeah. entertaining sake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was our game. If you want to try to figure out what was the spoonful there for, that was one of the reasons. We really weren't a good example of the protest music of the 60s or whatever. Before we come to that, I just want to finish up with Dylan, because you were on Bringing It Back Home. That's right. After a few years, well, let's see, what was it? 64. Uh, maybe, uh, yeah, I guess about a year or two. And Dylan had been ascending and gave me a call one time about a session, which I attended. But I don't know if you've heard descriptions of those sessions, but they were <laughs> very disorganized and relaxed and yet supervised. So, you know, they were going to get well recorded, but you never knew what was going to come next. I went in there just sort of speculatively, and he had asked me to play a little bass because we had been up here in Woodstock, New York, where I live now, at uh, Albert Grossman, his, his manager's house, and I uh, think I was fairly often just grabbing a bass when he was doing his thing. Yeah. And uh, so he was saying, why don't you, hey, come on in and play a little, little bass. I don't know, I might get 
I know, maybe several, several people, and we, I know you're going to have an idea, so we're just going to, going to start and see what happens. And it's like, uh, that's how invitations to Bob Dylan's sessions were. You really knew nothing. So I, I went and, uh, things got going and Bob started singing a tune or tune and I was kind of bumping along on a bass. Then he went on to another tune, and then Steve Boone showed up because Steve knew that session was happening and had an invite also from Bob. And so he showed up, and I just between takes, I went over to Bob, and I said, Hey, Bob, uh, this guy, this tall guy, he, he's a real bass player. Okay, so <laughs> that was a reason enough to go and try the tune again. Uh, I've forgotten which one it was. That was my next question. Do you remember what, what it was? No. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Steve uh, had a run at the thing, and it was good. And then we went on to do some other stuff. And then uh, the studio door opens again, and it's Harvey Brooks. <laughs> and And so both me and Steve go to Bob and go, hey, Bob, uh... This is a real studio bass player. <laughs> yeah. right. Because we both knew that, you know, Harvey was infinitely more facile with the instrument. You know, he, he knew what he was doing. Right. Our things, or certainly my thing was guitar player plays bass, which has limitations. So there you are, you know, and to this day, I am unsure as to which take was which and who played what. They did end up releasing, I think it's on like 15 CDs, everything yeah. from those sessions. So you got to be on there somewhere. Yes. And, and in fact, people have sent me like the four versions of whatever that tune was to say, which is you? <laughs> I still can't tell. <laughs> I want to talk about the spoonful and how they actually formed. I feel like I need one of those family tree flow charts to figure out which musicians came from which bands. I'll try to give you a, a, a brief uh, genus, okay, okay. Uh, and history, uh, because my friendship with Cass Elliot began when the, uh, she was in The Big Three, which was a folk group in the Peter, Paul, and Mary mold. She was marvelously funny, and the next thing I knew, I was working in Washington, D.C., and the big three were trying to make this transition into folk rock. And the way that played out was that Cass, who had known Denny Daugherty and Zalman for longer than I, 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 I hadn't known either one of them. But very soon thereafter, I got a phone call saying, would you come and bring us a pound of pot and play music for a couple of weeks? We have these uh, wonderful hotel rooms just outside of uh, D.C., and, uh, you know, we're kind of living it up, so get over here. And I did that, and our next conversations, I was playing harmonica with what was then the Mugwumps. That's Cass and Denny. And uh, was Zal in that as well? And Zal, yeah, and Zal was in it. So that band had a, a nice little pocket of success in Washington, D.C. But remember that the club they were playing was a very uptown little club. So the Mugwumps, Cass, Denny, and Zal primarily 
had me as a limited time harmonica player. And after two weeks, their manager came to me and said, we're going to have to let you go because you're a bad influence on Zalyanovsky. Because every time you play something, he'll like play it across the stage. We were at opposite sides of the stage. Or, or, or he plays something and, and you do it. And you guys are deviating from the arrangement. Uh, do you see the old-time folk music uh, yeah. uh, effect? Here? Yeah, yeah. So And so uh, that was fine. Uh, it was great to have the two weeks, and we had a lot of fun. So I had no bad feelings. But that evening, I sat around with an old piano player uh, in the sort of get-drunk room of this, you know, nice club. And we began doing the Bessie Smith catalog, it seemed like. I knew all these tunes, and he knew all the tunes. And the assistant manager, after hearing this, said, would you come down on the stairs with me for a minute? (laughs) I said, yeah. He said, look, you know, if you ever do need any kind of representation, boy, I, I, I wish you'd call me. At which point I said, yeah, yeah, I'm not ready. And years later, Bob Caballo would repeat the story of like, I never talked to any talent ever that said, I'm not ready. Yeah, it's shocking to hear that. And, uh, but he did make a very good impression. So now the mugwumps have to branch out. They end up getting a gig opening for Joey D and the Starlighters at the Peppermint Lounge. Now, that's really getting away from that polite folk music oh, yeah. crowd. Yeah. So much so that they began their set and the audience quickly just turned their backs and kind of half-heartedly danced until it was over to minimal applauses. Mm-hmm. I mean, and remember now, Joey D and the Starlighters at this point, that's Felix Cavalieri. <laughs> That's Dino Danelli. I mean, oh, that's it, right. it's a ferocious yeah. twist band. Okay, so anyway, they came away from that. They were staying at the Albert Hotel, which is only across the park and up about six blocks. And uh, I just heard their sad tale of, boy, I don't know. This may not be the thing. Of course, I'm trying to look disappointed, but in my secret heart of hearts, I'd have already gone, yes, Yanofsky is mine. (laughs) (laughs) Because that was what really the game for me was always once Yanofsky and I had played together, by the way, which happened at Cass Elliott's house on the eve of the Beatles doing the Ed Sullivan show for the first time. Really? And by the next day, that was like signed in blood. <laughs> I think both of us knew whoever the hell that guy is, I got to learn more about him. Mm-hmm. So that began a search in Greenwich Village, which lasted uh, a few months as we were trying out guys and speculating. I remember I, I wanted Johnny Hammond at a certain point. He was practically a neighbor of mine, and we'd really grown up together. We were playing together at five in Washington Square Park, but that didn't happen, and neither did. Uh, we had a, a real good uh, drummer named uh, Jan Buechner, 
but just started to realize that we needed a vocalist in this group, especially for any kind of background singing or once you've gotten bored with the songwriter guy. So eventually Steve said, hey, well, look, I've played with this guy, Joe Butler, a whole bunch. And we knew Butler from this group called the Sellouts that was playing there. Uh, you know, their ironic name was to really get in the face of traditional folksters. Right. And we were sort of in that camp, you know. Uh, it didn't start out that way. And weirdly, I was drawing an awful lot from various uh, folk sources. Right. But uh, it wasn't like we were accepted in Greenwich Village. When we played the uh, Night Owl, we had to wait for the teenagers to find us. Did I hear correctly that Phil Spector was actually caught in you guys a little bit? Yeah, you know, it was a wonderful kind of a moment, and it didn't last very long. What happened was Phil Spector was uh, clued in by one of his co-workers, I guess, that the word was, hey, Phil, there's some bad white boys playing down at the Night Owl Cafe. Maybe you should go see them. And that is exactly what happened. Phil came down with a little retinue. And uh, remember that his power at that point was uh, tremendous. Mm. And it was like the stock market. Whatever he did would have a ripple effect. So uh, he sat down in the Night Owl Cafe and listened to a set of ours. And in fact, he did it with one ear against the wall. The Night Owl Cafe is shaped like a shoebox, so, and you perform in the middle of the shoebox. So it's really an odd way to listen to music. It's a neck strainer, let me say that. Huh. So Phil listens, and we talk after, and, you know, his thing is, I love you guys. You guys are wonderful. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to do anything that isn't mine. I, I have to own it. I don't know. I have to write it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I have to own it. So, and so he was so frank that we kind of went, well, thank God for an honest man. Uh, and of course, years later, I approached him again when I was, uh, working as a single guy. And uh, he said, oh, again, the same thing. <laughs> and then a month later, he began work with John Lennon doing exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> I know you signed with Kama Sutra, but your first recording was on an EP for Electra. Uh, for Electra, yes. Uh, well, I'll tell you the story there. Sure. Because uh, uh, I was practically underfoot at Electra Records because I had become... Paul Rothschild's mini-me, if you will. Uh -huh. I just followed him around because I was learning every minute, every time he sat down at a console, every time he got out a single-edged razor blade, I was learning. So there was a point where Jack Holtzman invited the spoonful into his office. And he says, fellas, I know you're not going to let us be your label because you consider us a folk label. You consider us Theodore Bacall, I know. But uh, here's what I'm proposing. I want to buy four tunes. They don't have to be your A material. John, 
They don't have to be your originals. But uh, I want them to be uh, bluesy because I'm doing this compilation. And they're these guys uh, from England. I, you know, you haven't heard of them, but this guy, Eric Clapton, and, you know, it's like. <laughs> so, uh, and, oh, and, and Paul Butterfield was going to be on this. And so I said, boy, you know, how far wrong could we go? Mm-hmm. But here was his punchline. He says, you want to know what I'm going to do with those four singles, with those four records? And we go, no, we don't know. He says, I'm not going to put them out. For a year. (laughs) He says, because by then, you guys are going to start to be big, and I'm going to be able to sell records on the back of the big records that you're putting out. This little speech to us was such a confirmation that this guy in the business knew that we had something that was going to pop. And I think we did it for some fairly simple fee and four big amplifiers because we didn't have big amplifiers. We had things, you know, we had, I, I played a, a magnetone, you know, what right, is it, right. 15, 30 watts or something. Yeah. Uh, and we thought, oh my God, Yanovsky has a super reverb now. It's just the loudest thing on God's earth. They'll never be louder. <laughs> <laughs> that was our feeling in 66 or so. Those are the uh, PCBS super reverbs. That <laughs> sure is PCBS. Those are beautiful. Yeah. So you guys signed with Kama Sutra. That's right. And to our eternal regret, it wasn't that Kama Sutra couldn't do the job, but it was that Electra was the kind of company that could launch you further into the future as it evolved. Whereas Kama Sutra, you know, it was, look, I have no regrets because the thing about Kama Sutra was those guys had ears. That's why. They listen to the same, do you believe in magic, that I think we were up to like 40 or 50 record companies. Eric Jacobson went to every record company in New York that he could find and got turned down. Mm -hmm. So there was something to having a bunch of guys at Kama Sutra uh, and they were all like Hesh in The Sopranos. Yeah. Okay? They knew a hit when they heard it. Were they good to work with? The same yes. today, but a lot of labels didn't let bands, especially the first time out, record their own instruments. Famously, the Beach Boys, uh, the Association, the Birds, the Wrecking Crew did a lot of the, the back. Yeah, they, did you they get all, any hassle about that? Not for a minute. We were already a band. We had already done eight sets a day shows for a whole winter and spring. Uh, You know, by the time they were advertising the birds, we knew that we dwarfed them as far as amount of time logged on a stage. And the other thing was we dwarfed them because we had Zolly. (laughs) That meant for a stage show that was just, it was unpredictable, but it was... You know, the audiences loved it. Did you record much of those 
any of the gigs that you guys did? Because- no, I mean, there's one somewhere that Eric Jacobson was sort of trying out at the very beginning of the Night Owl. The only other recording is accompanied by a fairly elaborate three-camera shoot, which then became part of a film at Expo 66, or was it 65, in Toronto. Hmm. And that was one of those first experimental ideas where you have a screen on the wall and a screen on the adjoining wall and a screen on the floor. Okay. And that was a great performance at the Night Owl Cafe. I think it was Night Owl Blues we were playing. Great song. And that was the Love and Spoonful in its infancy, but we were already good. I just, it kills me that nobody can come up with a way of playing that footage. It is unplayable because of the format. The way it was recorded, there aren't any machines to play it anymore. Right out of the gate, you guys had two huge top 10 hits in the U.S. You Believe in Magic? Did you ever have to make up your mind? Talk to me about writing those songs. Well, Do You Believe in Magic was really driven by an experience we had very early on at the Night Owl Cafe while we were still playing for a lot of folkies and people who were expecting mainly to sit and have coffee. So that was a, a rough week or two. And I kept saying, man, there's going to be one girl from Queens comes in here and here's this, she's going to go home and tell her friends, and we're going to fill the joint. And somewhere around there, I looked in the very back, as I said, this uh, shoebox-shaped club. In the very, very back of the club, there was a girl dancing, and it was the new way. It wasn't the Lindy Bop or, yeah, you know. And so I just took the memory of that moment home. I remember elbowing Zolly like crazy saying, they're coming, (laughs) they're coming, man. (laughs) And it was about 10 more days. And all of a sudden, the Night Owl was full. There was a bit of a controversy that kind of went down in San Francisco in 66 that didn't involve you personally, but certainly affected the band in a big way. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, first of all, talk about not being involved to start with. I was in Los Angeles when all this happened. Yeah. And uh, so it was an unfortunate combination of things. And it's really more uh, elaborated in Steve Boone's book. I'd, I'd more or less use Steve as a template here because I was getting all of this very secondhand. But it uh, essentially, the cops did a complete, if it had gone to any kind of a determining body, it would have been obvious that the cops had essentially been on a screaming woman call, spotted some guys with long hair in a car, and uh, said, oh, let's stop them. And that's what they did. And they've had an ounce of pot. This is the thing. A drug bust is how it's always enumerated. But this was a pot thing. Yeah. This is a thing you can have for $300 and good night. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, this wasn't like uh, a Mexican cartel bust. <laughs> well, anyway, so the guys got caught. The police said, "You'll never work again, uh, Zali. You're going back to Canada, and your only option is to tell us who the guy that you bought the pot from was." So, on bad advice, they do that. But they also are hiring some of the, I I wish I could think of his name, like the biggest lawyer at the time to be ready to defend this guy and to defend themselves if necessary. And instead, the gent that they bought the pot from opted to go with his lawyer, who specifically was trying to legalize pot in San Francisco in 1966, was it? Yeah. So that wasn't going to happen. So it ruined everything, because now Zalman, who'd been a culture hero, is all of a sudden a fink. And all he was doing was the number one rule for any band. You do it for the guys in the band so that the band can continue. So there it is. I found out about all of this secondhand. And how unfair of the so-called underground press. I saw a couple of things. They put out ads. Ooh, hey, an early, an early example of virtue signaling. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys couldn't sue for libel or anything? Because that's potentially taking money out of your pockets. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Uh, and nobody had an appetite for uh, suits and courtrooms. That's true, too. That would have just added to the problems. Yeah. Did that contribute to Zal inevitably being fired, or was it other issues? It absolutely contributed, because Zal was already... By his own admission, a guy who uh, has very short patience, even with success. He said it to me. He would later say it to Chris Christofferson when Chris was working with him. Eventually, you'll fire me. He, He said that several times to many of his employees. So Zal was tremendously depressed by his uh, newfound be afraid world. Step on stage, there might be a guy whose way of virtue signaling is to shoot you, you know? So that was terrible, and it increased his alcohol use, and eventually he was driving even faster towards the edge. So there was a point where all of us, uh, that is everybody but him, had a meeting to say, what what do we got? Uh, We just couldn't figure out a way that this was going to be any fun anymore. Yeah. And uh, Spoonful was based on that. (laughs) Right. And why did you eventually decide to leave the band? Why did I decide to leave the band? Yes. Because the entire gestalt was created by me and zali you know that was as close to a you know it's a band type love affair and they're really important and they're they're really tough to get over and just about every one of our famous friends who've been in big bands have experienced it where you are in so tight and then uh, you're pulled apart. Now, the thing that is, I thought, spoonfully unique was that for the rest of the 60s, 
Zal would go to Saratoga to spend his love and spoonful money. That involved coming to my house, he'd stay with me, and we'd sit around and play guitars. So our wounds were healing every time he did that. Yeah. And then there were a couple times where I went up to Gananakwe and, and sat around his beautiful big farmhouse and heard hilarious stories of him dealing with animals. He's very skilled with dogs. And uh, all this time, Zal was also kind of an apprentice with a short order cook. And he learned the restaurant business from uh, this guy, essentially in a diner. Then he opened uh, a restaurant, and that restaurant has had, oh, wow, almost a 50-year life mm. and is attributed with changing the way this, the, the restaurant actually was the center for change, creating a kind of Greenwich Village in Kingston, Ontario. So it was so enormous yeah. that when Zal died, there was an entire section of the Kingston paper uh, that included people memorializing him and others who were saying, I wouldn't be able to have my little jewelry shop down the road if he hadn't put that restaurant in and made it look like cool. Uh-huh. So the end of his life was, uh, in many ways, uh, a real success, and it still goes on. His daughter is still running Shea Piggies. And if you're ever in Kingston, Ontario, Shea Piggies is the place to go. We've got to talk about Woodstock. Yeah. You were not scheduled to appear. You were there as as a spectator, as so many people were. Right. Give me your visceral memories of getting there and what you saw and what you felt. I went to the Albany airport speculatively, looked out the large, uh, you know, it's like a picture window. Those are the days when picture windows looked out on the tarmac. And I saw, oh my gosh, the Love and Spoonful's first roadie now working with the incredible string band, I would find out, loading a helicopter. So I gesticulated until he noticed me in the, in the window, and he pointed to the door that goes to the stairs that would come down on the tarmac. Number two thing that would never have happened in modern times. So I go down there and I say, yeah, Walter, what, what? He says, you're trying to get to Woodstock. That's right. He says, you got to get in this helicopter. There's no other way. I've been back and forth delivering stuff and you know that the roads are completely stopped and there's no buses or anything can get through. And so this is how to go. And I got on that helicopter and i saw what is essentially the beginning of the woodstock movie that thousands more saw and there it was uh, this looking down where you you couldn't even see turf it was all volkswagen buses and sleeping bags and and uh, little cobbled together tents and that was my first look and i got out of the helicopter and you got to remember that the scale of things was smaller then. And the music business 
almost everybody knew each other. So there wasn't really as big a reason to have an enormous security force or anything, because most of the people trying to get backstage should get backstage. And that was, I think, the attitude that I saw as I approached the backstage area. Yeah. Had no trouble getting in and looking at uh, saying hello to this friend and that friend. And uh, I remember pointing out to them that the the tent, which I think, it, I don't know if the, when the rains began, I had suggested that uh, their Volkswagen bus tent that was right near the stage that they needed to put some cardboard boxes to hold the shoes because the uh, it would immediately become muddy, and that was where we were keeping the acoustic instruments. Yeah. And uh, so the minute I laid it out, I think it was Chip Monk turned to me and said, you're in charge of the tent. <laughs> Just <laughs> like that. So all of a sudden, I did have a place to sleep. Uh, I think maybe the first night was in a truck, but by the second night I was in the tent. So really, I guess the part you're looking for that I've repeated so many times that I'm all, I almost go into a coma repeating <laughs> uh, is that uh, I was standing on the stage the next day after a rainfall, and I'm uh, talking to Chip Monk and Michael and uh, you know, the, uh, and at that point, I hear them say, you know, we need a guy who can hold them because we got to sweep this stage off. Uh, we need somebody who can hold them with an acoustic guitar. You know, like somebody's got some songs and acoustic guitar. And I'm kind of nodding, looking out at the crowd. Yeah. And I'm not looking either way to my sides until I do. And I realize that they're looking at me. Uh -huh. And I have, say, fellas, I, I didn't even bring a guitar. I, th I may have a thumb pick in my jeans, but I don't have any stuff. They said, well, you have several minutes to find a guitar. Uh, so at that point, I ran downstairs to Tim Harden, who was relaxing in the uh, under the stage area wasn't entirely built. I think the intent was to have a, a whole floor of dressing room. And I said, Tim, I'd, I'd worked with Tim uh, quite a bit in Greenwich Village. Tim, can you lend me your guitar? He said, sure. And uh, so I, I tuned as I was running up the stairs. You did some songs, which is interesting. You didn't rely, you did Down Be Home Soon. But you didn't rely on old spoonful numbers. You actually previewed numbers that were going to be on your solo album the year after. It was a tremendous opportunity that I was not going to squander uh, doing Daydream. Right. <laughs> now, there's a little controversy as to where exactly in the lineup you actually played. Yeah. Yeah. Could I say to all of you people, you need to get more life <laughs> no 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 these things are very important but so like yeah am yeah. i before santana or after uh is country joe in there <laughs> did i open the show right. Oh, right. wrong wrong <laughs> all wrong so yeah all i know is i went on on saturday when rain started to break 
I'm sure you've seen that 38-disc Woodstock box set. And they've got you between Santana and Keith Hartley, so that's good enough for me. Good. As I mentioned in the intro, you played with the Doors on several occasions, famously in the studio on Roadhouse Blues, although you did not use your name. Uh, there was some pseudonym. Was it Pugliese? Yeah. Right? That's my, would have been my name if my dad hadn't changed it. Ah. And I did that at Paul Rothschild's request because he wasn't anxious to have a guy in the spoonful recording with the doors. And that, I believe, was because at that time, the doors were just beginning to happen. And he was anxious to have it seem like everything sprung from them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you played with them at the Felt Farm in New York City. 1970 did that blistering version of rock me baby just great were you close with the guys i was close with paul rothschild okay and paul was uh, at various times annoyed with morrison's uh, lack of uh, focus in some of these you know fairly expensive rock and roll sessions uh and uh, it sounds strange i'm sure to your current listeners but his take was Jim would have a little bit more respect if I was there and did sort of play out that way. Jim had a very constructive day, but the main reason that I just said, oh, yes, I will do this session, I don't care about the name, was that Lonnie Mack was playing bass. That's right, yeah. And I was in heaven. Because that was live. I gotta ask you, I should know this already, but I don't. Welcome back. Was that already recorded and written? Were you commissioned to do it no. for the show? How did that no, happen? No, it, it, it's very much uh, a work for hire. Um, the, it's not an interesting story. Uh, Perfect for it, my show. Yeah, because <laughs> it really happened the most conventional of Hollywood ways, where two old friends get together, Alan Sachs and Dave Bendett, my manager, and they're shooting the bull, and uh, Sachs goes, you know, I'm doing this show, it's going to be kind of a New York show, I'm looking for kind of a New York guy, you know, I need somebody kind of like John Sebastian. My manager says, I've been managing John for two weeks. And so that sets up a meeting. I go to Television City there in Burbank. There's several suits. And a very likable Alan Sachs, who we get along with each other immediately. Uh, and to me, the flavor of the song starts there. Because we're immediately insulting each other's burrow. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he knows I'm from Manhattan. <laughs> I know he's from Brooklyn. Now, the California guys, the suits, are kind of nervous. <laughs> I can see. They think they see their deal falling apart. Uh, instead, what is happening is we're solidifying a friendship. And Alan proceeds to show me a number of everything from like a, a trial run at a script, uh, you know, uh, uh, all just the, the bare bones. And I immediately saw the appeal and some of the gestalt of having, uh, I'm going up on, on the comedian's name. Oh, 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 uh, Gabe Kaplan. Kaplan, yeah. Okay. 
this whole show, of course, came out of Kaplan's monologues that he would do. So um, I took this idea home and made toy recordings that evening on two boom boxes back and forth and came in the next day with this boombox recording and they were uh, pretty astonished uh, so much that they actually changed a television show named Cotter to Welcome Back Cotter. Really? Yeah. Now that's cool. But how does that work financially? I'm always curious about those kind of things. I mean, you said it was a work for hire, but yet you had an album in the songs yeah, on it. I mean, yeah, and if you make the right deal, you you know, your publishing doesn't go away, your writers doesn't go away. Okay. You know, I I'm I'm sure that <laughs> you you know, you're not going to win in those situations right. really. Right. But you'll you'll do okay. You know, much like Pete Seeger, he was almost like the gatekeeper of the folk music idiom. You see yourself in that kind of role now as almost like a guardian of the art form? You know, what I see is that I got a brand new album with Arlen Roth. Ah. And that's what's interesting to me right now, especially because we did this all during difficult COVID times, but we were able to do the entire project first run and basic tracks staring at each other and staring at the bass player and drummer. And uh, we had a, a lot of fun approaching what I was terrified of, of doing, which was re-recording some of these visible tunes. Uh, I thought it was a bad idea until I heard some of Arlen's way that he was envisioning and recording things like... Uh, acoustic rolling stones so he does all the rolling stones tunes he can get in but they're just acoustic renderings right well i was finding these things really agreeable especially like play during dinner you know and just nice yeah. Uh, sure, so, sure. so i was complimenting him when he said hey you never did one of these and I said, I've been afraid of all of this kind of thing. Well, that was over because we'd already, you know, done a lot of playing together benefits and odd things uh, where you just have to walk on stage and know what to do. And, of course, my game is always the same game as with Yanovsky. Support. Build the foundation. And... Your job is done because Arlen run it at him three times and he gives you three different complete ideas. And so it was a remarkable and very expedient sessions. We got a lot done when we were working. We get sh- Then we'd get shut down and couldn't do this and couldn't do that. Right. But, uh, so there was a, an interval before the whole thing started. And which and- track would you say came out the best for you? Well, you know, uh, Lexi Roth did a version of Didn't Want to Have to Do It, where I had done this elaborate harmonica instrumental version. Uh, Lexi, meanwhile, was kind of nudging Dad to say, hey, uh, give me a shot at this, because she was hearing some of this. said, I love this tune. Not only did she do it, but she did all the background parts. Oh. And... When she sent it back to us, 
I started hastily erasing all of these harmonica tracks because <laughs> what she'd done was just way cooler. And uh, so uh, Lexi Roth on Didn't Want to Have to Do It uh, is one of my unexpected favorites. And Jeff Maldaz sings And then, sings yeah, then I music. also, I, this may be a first for anybody recently where I got both Maldors on one record in modern times. Uh, yes, uh, Jeff kind of what you call tenored me on a couple of things. And Maria and I did a version of stories we could tell that felt very real. Talking to myself again, wondering if this traveling is good. Is there something else doing we'd be doing if we could? But all the stories we could tell. And if it all blows up and goes to hell, I can still see us sitting on a bed in some motel. And listen to the stories we could tell Remember that guitar in that museum in Tennessee Name played on the glass brought back 20 melodies And the scratches on my face told of all the times he fell Singing all the stories he could tell And all the stories it could tell And I'll bet you it still rings like a bell And I wish that we could sit back on a bed in some motel and listen to the stories it could tell down your every night and singing for a living beneath the brightly colored lights and if you ever wonder why you ride that carousel you did it for the stories you could tell and all the stories we could tell and before we have to say our last farewell I just wish that we could sit back on a bed in some motel And listen to the stories we could tell Yes, I wish that we could sit back on a bed in some motel Listen to the stories we could tell mm -hmm. 
from his latest CD, John Sebastian and Alan Roth explore the Spoonful songbook. That's Stories We Could Tell, featuring Maria Moldar. Remember her? Midnight at the Oasis? Of course you do. I do want to thank John Sebastian for being with us today. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do so online at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Typed out as all one word, no abbreviations or spaces, please. You know, unless you really want to, then have at it. New content is just around the corner. We'll come back soon. And thanks for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast.